Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today, our guest is Yaron Ayalon. He's an assistant professor in the Department of History at Ball State University. Dr. Ayalon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. As a, I know you're an environmental historian, also a social historian of the Middle East, uh, as am I. We're a small but growing group, and it's always nice to sit down and talk with yes. uh, one among us. Now, your new book, entitled Natural Disasters in the Ottoman Empire, Plague, Famine, and Other Misfortunes, uh, tackles the uh, socio-political context, we could say, of natural disasters that occurred in the Ottoman Empire. We'll get That's to the right. specifics of that. Uh, I think it's a nice read alongside Sam White's Climate of Rebellion, which mm-hmm. deals with a, a not necessarily a natural disaster, but a mega climate event and how it may have impacted life in Ottoman Anatolia in various ways, a right. very provocative work. Uh, and I think your work also raises a lot of uh, similar questions about how do we go from studying things that are natural disasters like earthquakes and all of this kind of stuff, how does that uh, transfer into the human realm as well? And so that's what we'll be talking about today. Bef- before we do talk about the Ottoman context, I want to know from you as a uh, historian working on the history of natural disasters, thinking as an environmental historian, how do you define a natural disaster I mean, clearly it's a social construct. Some, some disasters are seen as outside of human agency. Yes. Uh, but uh, maybe in the Ottoman context, what does that mean for you? This is a very good question, but it's a somewhat of a tricky question for me, I mean, because uh, some disasters, I mean, if there's a flood, you could say that that's pretty natural, sure. uh, unless we can prove somehow that, that yeah. humans were behind it. Uh, an earthquake, you could say the same thing. Um, but to me... At the end, I came up with the following definition, which is if we are talking about a disaster that people either did not fully understand, that is, there Mm -hmm. was no um, full understanding of the reason behind it, why it happened, or there was some understanding of why it happened, but there there were all sorts of difficulties, either in prevention or in uh, responding to it, then I put it as part of, um, then I grouped it under natural disasters. Um, Of course, you can easily criticize that decision. I don't think there is one way to do it. Uh, I had to make decisions based on the evidence that was available uh, and did purposely try to avoid disasters that are clearly man-made, like some army looting a city. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, and so I focused on things that at least there was some natural element sure. in them. And when you do that uh, in the period preceding the 19th century, you really get it's 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 really four main issues that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are epidemics. It's mostly plague, but not only yeah. um, and famines and earthquakes and some fires. And, mm-hmm. and that's about it. Sure. And of course, as environmental historians, studying natural disasters also means we're kind of critiquing and playing with the very notion of, of what is natural, right? So that's right. you use that as a category, but also through the interaction uh, between human society and the environment, we can show how things that seem natural have uh, human components. And maybe we can flesh that out. I mean, yes. you mentioned famine. I know from, from my colleagues who study famine, famine on one hand, if it's induced by drought, especially, it can be the most natural of disasters. That's it right. didn't rain. On the other hand, famine is one of the most uh, socioeconomic disasters. Indeed. Some people starve and others do not. Not only that, famine can also be caused by corruption sure. of certain individuals. Exactly. By uh, the disruption of a convoy that's carrying... Uh, food supply to a certain mm-hmm. town 
because some bandits mm-hmm. uh, intercepted it yeah. in between two cities. It can be caused by all sorts of things like that. Uh, that's all true. At the end, in my book, I gave a pretty concise definition of what is natural and what I'm using for this book and avoided the long discussion, which indeed is necessary to be had at some point, but I just wasn't into it too much. So I avoided the longer discussion of what is natural and what is not and how do we define it and, uh, you know, because it really is an elusive definition, as you said. So I I just decided to, you know, basically explain this is what I've chosen to do and from now on that's what I'm going to do and the discussion will be done by somebody else. And, and, and this work focuses more on the, the impact and context of these disasters when yes. they occur. You know, in the history of medieval and early modern Europe, plague is, is huge. It's one of the defining uh, features of the European historiography. Right. Plague is used to plague, which wasn't well understood at the time. Now we have maybe a better understanding of it. But yeah. regardless, it's used to explain many things, changes in economics, to family, household structures, uh, the layout of, of cities in Europe and so forth, a massively uh, important force within the historiography of Europe. If we look at the Ottoman Empire, we do have some emerging works on plague, on disease, and, and similar topics, but it's that's really in a, a kind of corner of the field. I feel like ecological perspectives are very much uh, marginal yeah. in the study of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. I want to know why you think that is, like, what 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 has been happening in the historiography that that wasn't looked at, and why have people turned to uh, environmental questions as of late in our field? Well, I don't think that that these natural disasters, if you look at plague, as you mentioned, I don't think that they have any uh, or they they had any less impact on society than what we've seen in Europe. I think yes. it's a question of the perception and the perspective and the fact that, as you rightly noted, there are far fewer works on that in the Middle Eastern context. Why is that? Well, the general, the the most obvious explanation that doesn't really explain anything is that uh, we are 20 to 30 years behind European historians in terms of the kind of questions Uh that we ask and the questions that we can answer. Um, Until recently, let's say the last 20 years, uh, many documents were not even accessible to historians, so we couldn't even reach the information. Mm -hmm. Now the Ottoman archives are open, mostly open, and it's easy to to access this information uh, if if you can read the documents, Mm -hmm. of course. And there are similar other uh, archives throughout the Middle East and Europe that are open that can shed light on this. Uh, At the end, I I also believe that for any area, you got to have someone... To start, in our case, this was Alan Mikhail, and he's the one who uh, published his book in 2011. That was really the book that that started people thinking about all of these questions. Um, but even before then, I mean, people were thinking about this. Sure. I was writing my dissertation before he published his book. Sam White was working on his dissertation before then. In fact, we were uh, Sam White and I collecting evidence at the Ottoman archives at the same time, and we were sure. on the on the boat tours every day back and forth from the archives, uh, you know, exchanging some ideas. Uh, this was a long time ago, but my point is that you need some people to come up with these ideas. Um, so uh, Alan's books have obviously uh, exposed uh, quite a bit of that, um, opened the way, uh, paved the way for for uh, for this kind of thinking. And I'm thinking that we're going to see more and more of it, yeah. but we have to still realize that for anything that precedes the 19th century, we still have quite a bit of limitation when it comes to the sources. We don't have a similar tradition of keeping documents as we have in Europe. Mm-hmm. 
And so, in European, uh, in you know, for European historians, almost every small village mm-hmm. has a nice archive that goes back to like Black Death times sure. or, or later. Um, and so, the options are there, and you can do yeah. a lot more. I think what we need to do as Middle East historians is to continue to read the literature coming out of Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not that we cannot come up with original ideas; we can yeah. lead too. Sure, but many of their questions are good questions to ask. And we can ask them, and we won't be able to answer all of them, but some questions are worth asking yeah. even if you can't answer them. You, you, you alluded to something that people say quite frequently, especially if we want to talk about environmental history, that our field is a little bit behind yes. uh, historiographical trends in Europe, but uh, in, in other... Or in, in the Americas, too, Or in the Americas, the I mean, yes. in the West, but, yes. uh, you know, in other fields... Uh, uh, our field has been really quite robust, but yes. you know, people are asking very different questions. I think sometimes in the field of Middle East history, mm-hmm. That's um, right. there's a lot of political questions. There's a lot of questions in you know the social history of the Middle East that yes. are, are of great concern for people in our field and our colleagues. And I think that for some, there's a knee-jerk response, and I think it's very mistaken that environment is somehow separate from that. That it's right. a it's a realm that's you know, not relevant to these questions we ask. I think one interesting aspect of your work uh, is your discussion of um, natural disasters and how they played out with regard to relation between different communities, different communal groups in the Ottoman Empire. I was wondering if you could maybe uh, introduce uh, that argument a little bit because it's quite fascinating. Yes, well, that is the kind of argument that really places me somewhere in between an environmental historian and a social historian. Mm -hmm. Because coming into this book, I wanted to look at natural disasters um, as a way not to understand how the empire operated overall, Mm -hmm. um, as as perhaps Alan tried to do in his books, but um, really trying to understand daily life, the daily experiences Mm -hmm. of of Ottoman people, um, and what we can learn about Ottoman society. And... There were two reasons I felt I could do that. One is that um, if you look at people who study disasters in modern contexts, mm-hmm. sociologists and psychologists, there's agreement there that uh, disasters are not unique uh, events, but rather sort of a, um, uh, an opportunity to look at society as a whole, some mm-hmm. sort of a magnifying glass or yeah, something. Yeah, interesting. So we can take those assumptions and use them for history, and it really works because in Ottoman history, especially before the 19th century, it was those events that generated a lot of documentation, especially when the state decided to do something yeah. about it. So that helps us look into you know the, the, the different fabrics of society and trying to understand how, how things work. Um, and to me, I was always fascinated by this issue of the place of non-Muslims within Muslim society. That was a separate fascination uh, that was Mm -hmm. not at first related to my fascination with people dying. Uh, And and, and so at the end, what what happened is that I was working on this book and I realized time and again from the evidence that there is really no difference in the type of responses that the state issues local authorities or imperial authorities um, when it comes to who gets the aid, who are the recipients. Mm-hmm. It is almost always the case that the recipients uh, can be Muslim or non-Muslims. Okay. There's, there's lack of discrimination. And when there is apparent discrimination, we can normally explain it by factors that are not necessarily related 
to the state wanting to say we are Muslims and non-Muslims are worth less. Okay. Um, Could you give an example to maybe uh, yes. flesh that out a little more? Yes. So, for example, um, we have several instances of attempts to rebuild cities. Mm -hmm. Rebuilding cities after uh, natural disasters, not every town was rebuilt immediately. Mm -hmm. And there's really a hierarchy there. You can see this. If it's a small town or a place of, of lesser political or strategic significance for the Ottomans, they could let this place lie in ruins for months or years until someone sent in a petition and said, you know, we need you guys uh, to step in and do something. But if it was a place of, of significance to them, yeah. meaning if that place disappeared or if there's chaos there, then it can gradually or even very quickly lead to instability in the capital. Then they acted rather quickly. And quickly is within a few weeks or one or two months. That's mm -hmm. pretty quick for the 18th century. And so, uh, for example, in Damascus, in, in the wake of a series of earthquakes in, in, the, uh, in 1759, late 1759, we see this massive reconstruction project in early 1760. And if you look at the type of buildings that the state not only rebuilt, but actually financed, they funded, there's their whole list, it's a very long report, then... At first, you may think, you know what? Yes, uh, they're only building mosques. Why are they only building mosques? But if you read it carefully, you realize, first of all, that the first buildings to re be rebuilt are not mosques. There are, um, on those lists, you can find um, the, the headquarters of the governor, the citadel, yeah. uh, military barracks, yeah. um, uh, storehouses for various types of grain. Mm -hmm. Things that the state needs to restore immediately yeah. to ensure that life is back on track and then there are also mosques but what mosques are they rebuilding they're not rebuilding all sorts of tiny neighborhood mosques they're rebuilding the large you know sultanic properties right, the symbols of uh, the imperial symbols, the symbols of imperial control that's mm -hmm. right which happen to be islamic that is the language of imperial control is the language of islam yeah so people are used to it that's the language they know. How do you communicate with your subjects? I'm here, I'm the ruler, yeah. and don't worry, there was chaos, but now everything is fine. You rebuild this building and you put a bunch of, um, of Quranic uh, quotations yeah. uh, on, on the outside wall, and everyone knows that is the language that signifies to us the state is here, um, and you know we're back in business. Yeah. And those complexes, sure, Jews and Christians didn't pray in, in those mosques, and and so they they had not too much, you know, issue with that. But but those complexes, for example, had lodges for guests or poor people or soup kitchens that were accessible to some Jews and Christians. We know that. Mm -hmm. So they were not exclusive of Jews and Christians. And those other government facilities did not exclude Jews or Christians. What don't the Ottomans do? They do not rebuild churches and synagogues. Okay. But the explanation for that is quite simple. And that is their understanding of their role as um, guaranteeing the continuation of the public domain of a city, okay. but not the private parts of a city. That's why they don't rebuild uh, private residences sure. at all, unless your house happened to share a wall with one of those imperial walks. Mm -hmm. In that case, you got lucky. They would rebuild your house. But otherwise, they didn't do it. Um, and so they don't build private homes, and they don't build churches and synagogues, because while in the public space, they don't exclude Jews and Christians. Churches and synagogues are places from where Muslims are typically excluded. And mm -hmm. if Muslims are excluded, then it's not part of the public area. And therefore, uh, anything that's private is in the responsibility of whoever lives there. But 
that does not indicate discrimination uh, in in my understanding uh, because you have so many of these other uh, issues you know redistribution of grain tax breaks that mm-hmm. Jews and Christians and Muslims enjoy equally sure. yeah so you see that the Ottoman state's reaction uh, mm-hmm. to a natural disaster is essentially to restore the status quo to set things back to normal to the, so, to, to restore patronage this mm-hmm. the sultan is the ultimate patron of everyone yeah. and everyone means all subjects mm-hmm. uh, and that includes the non-muslim subjects yeah part of the language of governance included those scripts of discrimination mm-hmm. like misspelling the names of jews and christians in ottoman official records uh, that wasn't consistent, by the way. If you look carefully, you find quite a few instances where the names are actually spelled correctly. Yeah. Uh, the person is still identified as a Jew or a Christian, but the, the names are spelled uh, uh, correctly. So that discrimination was part of the bureaucratic system. You could look at it and say, well, that's inherent discrimination built into the system. Mm-hmm. Or you can say that was just the language. And overall, the situation of Jews and, and, and Christians wasn't inherently different from that of Muslims with some exceptions, and that is the interpretation that I choose. So you alluded to this fact that uh, natural disasters are kind of like a uh, a magnifying glass with which to view uh, society. Uh, Do you see this work as speaking to a debate on whether or not the uh, Ottoman government or Ottoman society is ultimately one that is, uh, you know, inclusive or, um, uh, you know, tolerance was the word that was used a lot in, in yes. previous decades. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, and I think that's where at least my research is leading. Uh, and in fact, in my next project, I want to take one such example, which is uh, Jewish communities living in the Ottoman Empire and try to reevaluate this in light of my findings. Because mm-hmm. what we must understand is that the previous understanding, and I'm not the only one who's trying to change that in recent years, but, but, but the old understanding that those non-Muslim communities were not integrated. Yeah. Uh, they were separate entities from the rest of uh, society. Um, that explanation doesn't really hold in light of all sorts of recent evidence that, it, that has come out. And my study just reinforces that from a, from a different perspective, from the environmental perspective. And what I want to do is take this further and say, well... If we look at all the study about the Jewish community in the Ottoman Empire, we really see those segregated communities where the, the clergy, well, the rabbis in this case, had um, you know a pretty strict and authoritative structure in which they operated. And they were at the top, of course, and they were the ones who dictated what to do. And they were the ones who punished offenders and, uh, and all that. And that model just doesn't really hold very well. Sure. Um, and so you see how we get from questions that could be purely in the environmental area of history to purely social and religious questions. And I think that's, that's the wonderful contribution of environmental history. It lets, it lo- it lets us look at history from angles mm-hmm. that we would never have thought of before. Mm-hmm. And so that's great. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Yaron Ayalon about his new book, Natural Disasters in the Ottoman Empire. I want to remind all those who are listening to check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to get a link where you can you know, find that book as well as other readings relevant to today's subject. So, Professor Ayalon, we've been discussing uh, the ways in which natural disasters 
can be used as a means of understanding broader Ottoman society, sort of reflecting uh, the social organization and yes. values. Yes. Uh, I want to ask maybe uh, a different type of question. I want to know what uh, discourses about natural disasters in the time in which they were lived, what those also reveal. I mean, maybe you could use an example from the ways in which plague was discussed or the way in which people reacted and perceived plague. Do you see uh, some interesting stories there that uh, tell us more about, you know, the sort of worldview of about how people Ottoman perceive citizens. sure yeah yes there's some stories here and there um the old historical narrative tells us of course that muslims perceived plague as a form of punishment and uh it's something that comes from god and it's inevitable mm-hmm. there's no point in fleeing plague areas for example mm-hmm. do you think that holds and, up uh i think that there was some level of popular belief but that's where it stops because we do see Muslims fleeing plague. Mm-hmm. At the end, the division was probably economic. If you could afford to go elsewhere, you would. Uh, and if you couldn't, you wouldn't go. Uh, and that has nothing to do with uh, religious principles. Surely there were some people who were very devout, you know, and they, mm-hmm. and they, really, they truly believed that the religion told them that mm-hmm. they shouldn't go anywhere. And so they wouldn't go. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, similar debates existed in Europe. Uh, there's sure. a whole very long and, and, and explicit letter by Martin Luther about about this very question, should one flee plague areas? And there were some debates between Catholics and Protestants about this. But at the end, everyone recognizes, the Europeans did, and then the Ottomans did, that people leave plague areas. Yeah. The Ottomans in the 16th century still tried to prevent that by imposing all sorts of uh, sanctions yeah. on people who left. But by the 17th century, you see this very clearly. They already realize it. The fact that they keep adjusting taxes to certain areas is really the proof of their recognition. Yes, people left. That's why we have to readjust taxes. Yeah. It wasn't very good for their economy because some of these guys just disappeared and never never paid taxes again <laughs> until they were, I guess, refound somewhere. Yeah. But anyway, so the point is that how people perceive this in general, people didn't really know how to explain it. Uh, we have some reports of conversations taking place in coffee houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, this mostly comes from Arab Arab chronicles. People sitting in coffee houses and having those discussions and believing, you know, well, we've heard stories that at the, in the next town there is plague, so it's probably going to come here. Or about earthquakes. Oh, there is um, a solar eclipse. So that's a preliminary sign of an earthquake. There were all sorts of these popular beliefs. Um, but the way I understand it is that popular beliefs aside, people acted based on whatever judgment they had at the moment and what, what, what resources they had and what they could actually do. I mean, if you are tied to a position, if you miss one day of work, mm-hmm. then you don't have any money to feed your family. You're not going anywhere. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if you believe that you should go or not. Mm-hmm. And if you have five houses outside of the city, then you are going, whether you believe that you should go or not. The same goes with earthquakes, of course. Uh, Rich people had other houses they could go to. Poor Mm -hmm. people moved to live in the gardens outside the city. Mm -hmm. When your house is destroyed, what can you do, right? So uh, that's as far as I can take it. I wish we could do more with respect to these popular beliefs, but... As far as I understand the evidence that exists, uh, it's it's quite limited on that front. Do you see any room for reading political or sociopolitical critiques 
of contemporary societies of the early modern period through this uh, language of divine wrath, for example, that's evoked mm-hmm. in Muslim and Christian sources alike, that that actually the, the, the language of divine punishment is actually a valid criticism for something that's going on in the presence that those people were living? I think that's a valid inter- interpretation of it. Uh, I have not dealt with that question mm. too much. Uh, so I can't, uh, I can't take, I can't take that, you know, further than this. I think it's a valid question. I think popular beliefs always have to do something with the political situation. Yeah, it's usually implied, right? It's not stated clearly. Yeah, um, I think that's true. But the question I have to ask myself is, can we really write a whole study about this question? Because I don't feel, and maybe one day someone would do a more serious work on all the chronicles that are out there, manuscript or published, and have enough of these anecdotes to say, okay, well, we can map those popular beliefs or local reactions and then try to tie them Mm -hmm. to, you know, political criticism or political trends, whatever that is. That would be a magnificent study, but I don't know who can carry that out. I mean... We'll be surprised well, maybe I think one that's, day. Uh, I think that's why you write a book and then see what the next person writes. Right? That's right. Indeed. Yes. Okay, welcome back. Chris Grayton here with uh, Yaron Ayalon uh, talking about his uh, book, Natural Disasters in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, you mentioned in your... I guess it goes under the heading of other misfortunes in your subtitle, yes. uh, the issue of, of fires right. uh, in cities. It reminded me of a conversation we had in a much earlier episode with um, an anthropologist, Elizabeth Angel, who studies uh, preparedness and perception of earthquakes in Turkey today. Yes. Uh, and one of the things we know about Turkey's presence is that, yes, earthquakes, you know, in the present, earthquakes are an inevitable fear of the future. Yes. On the other hand, who dies and who lives, what happens in the earthquake has a lot to do with architecture, city planning. It has to do with, uh, you know, very human factors. Yes. I think thinking historically fires are another example where yes, fires are something that could break out without clear explanation. But on the other hand, it seems pretty clear that they're not environmental and they're, they're, they're an an outgrowth of the human environment. But, 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 but they belong, they belong in this discussion. Yeah. Because first of all, fires and earthquakes are almost always tied. I yep. mean, there, there would be an earthquake other, yep. first and then a fire, but there, there's a, th- that connection exists. Second, because as you said, many times people, of course, now we know, yeah, all fires are somehow started uh, either by, by some sort of a malfunctioning something or by human action. Yeah. But most people didn't really understand how come yeah. a fire just erupted out of nowhere? Sure. Um, but so, fires so, are an arena where they have the chance to rebuild differently, to right. change so, the way they configure the city in order to prevent such a disaster. Yes. Yeah, so let's let's address that point. So um, in early modern Europe, I think the Great Fire of London would be the first example where this was really done systematically. Uh, the fire cleared out all of the old city center, and they could really rebuild the city, you know, um, create those wide avenues, um, 
you know, and, and come up with those ideas like building codes, which, you know, we still have today for mm-hmm. buildings, but they're the ones who invented them. Wow. Uh, building codes and, you know, regulations and minimum distance between two buildings, you know, to make it difficult for fires to uh, spread in the future. But that, of course, had other social implications. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now... Um, the city has a lot more of these open public spaces. There's more room for the government, uh, for government surveillance, that is, uh, mm-hmm. to see what's, you know, what's yeah. going on on the one hand. But on the other hand, there's a lot more anonymity, too, in those big cities. Mm-hmm. Because now you have those huge avenues. And you can easily, like, before you had smaller streets, um, everyone knew who you were. The sure. neighborhoods were very dense. Now everything is spread out. So on the one hand, more government involvement in, in private life. On the other hand, more anonymity. But... So now we got to ask the question, well, why aren't the Ottomans taking advantage of this? You have a fire, everything is wiped out. To just change, totally change the landscape to, of the city. To totally mean. change the landscape of the city. So there are two ways to answer this. One is, in some instances, they do that, but on a small scale. Mm-hmm. Like after the Great Fire in 1660, that's even before London, in Istanbul, where this happens in Eminunu. This was a, a predominantly Jewish section, uh, and, and Mark Baer talks about this in his book, where uh, they basically... Um, replace that Jewish quarter, uh, which was very densely built. And in Istanbul, things burned very quickly because all the houses were made of wood. Uh, erasing that and building their uh, a mosque, that's the, the new mosque today, Yeni Jami, that's yeah. the mosque that they built, um, and, and repopulating the area with Muslims. But this, is, this doesn't happen in the entire city. It just happens in one quarter. That's one example. And that example is, is quite an exception for many, many reasons, like the displacement of non-Muslims. It doesn't happen elsewhere. It is tied to this crazy Puritan movement that was in control of the Ottoman court at the time, the, the Cadiz Uh so, so this is really an exception and not, not the norm. But if you look at all the other places, you got to ask yourself again, so why aren't they doing this? And the other thing that comes to mind is that the Ottomans didn't know what, what the Europeans were doing. I found a report in the Ottoman archives of the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, uh, which arrived in yeah. the Ottoman court only a few weeks after it and details what the Portuguese are doing. So it's not like there's no knowledge. And then those things happen, you know, and uh, Damascus that I told you about, only four years after Lisbon, they rebuilt the city to the exact specs. And that is because at this point, for some reason, the Ottomans weren't ready yet to change um the landscape of a city. Yeah. Some of it had to do with the principle of precedent in Islamic yeah. society. And, and Alan Michael talks about this, that precedent was almost, I mean, precedent is law. It's more than yeah. anything else. You know, it's very, very important. If my window was uh, overlooking the east side, that my window will continue to overlook the east side, because if I build it overlooking south side, I will be looking into your bedroom and that's violating your privacy. And they yeah. were thinking about those things because it's there in the text. Yeah. And, uh, and texts about the laws of privacies by, um, by Ottoman, um, you know, Ottoman Sheikh al-Islams uh, clarify these issues very clearly. I mean, they say this, you know, the house was destroyed. You got to build it exactly as it was before because you don't want to violate somebody else's privacy. So precedent is really big. You got to keep things as they used to be and privacy is a big issue. And we don't see that changing. I mean, I've seen reports, uh, major earthquake in Aleppo in 1822. It doesn't change yet. The first indication that I've seen that it changes, and again, it might have happened a little earlier, is after the 1855 Bursa earthquake. Uh, and fires, by the way. So all of these earthquakes had fires in them too. After that, again, half the city is wiped out for the first time. 
they decide let's do things differently. They bring in British and French architects. Uh, and they do what the British had done in the 17th century, in the mid-19th century. Mm-hmm. That is, they build wide avenues. Uh, they destroy, I mean, they raise a lot of small houses. They not only rebuild destroyed areas. They're like, if we're already into it, let's, you know, redo the entire city. So a lot of people just are kicked out of their homes. And oh, wow. because, because they are, you know, they're built in these very, you know, dense neighborhoods. And those, you know, the, those all, all of these alleys, small alleys are just erased. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, because if you go to Bursa today, you still have those tiny streets, but a large portion of the city yeah. is like that. So um, it's kind of an expression of a Tanzimat uh, ideology right. in, a, in a crystallized in a moment of crisis. What does it, this mean indeed. for the future of a city? And who is the guy who oversees this entire operation? The same Midhat Pasha, who would later, uh, you know, course. one of the leaders of the Tanzimat. So um, the thing is that this was him before he became big, you know? Mm-hmm. When he sure, was still yeah, an Ottoman bureaucrat, gigs, yeah. one of his one of his projects was to oversee the rebuilding of Bursa. So you don't see that before, but after 1855, you see this in some other senses. Uh, so uh, the Ottomans just for some reason the approach changed later, I guess, as part of the Tanzimat. That's yeah. the explanation I have, um, and and that's it. But we don't see that change happening before. Well, then. one could imagine that trying to reshape, not just rebuild, but actually redefine uh, uh, an urban space could have social ramifications. It could cause unrest. I mean, not good. It did have social ramifications. People were demonstrating against this. Mm-hmm. But in the Tanzimat era, I think um, the Ottomans felt strong enough to take on, let's say, sure. the religious establishment. Ah, mm-hmm. I'm not sure they were willing to, in the 17th century, for sure not, because the religious establishment, I mean, the ulama and the Janissaries, they controlled the palace. Okay. So there was no way any sultan was taking on these guys. They were the strongest and they were the ones dictating policies. In the 18th century, well, there were some attempts to... Um, to challenge those authorities, but they didn't always work very well. So at the end, um, times have changed, and so the practices change. And mm-hmm. but we only see that yeah. in the 19th century. Well, that would be interesting, I'm sure, for uh, you know certain. If we want to think about modern Turkey, certain ru- rulers yes. or governors of the present uh, to see that the the classical Ottoman model for uh, urban management is not uh, urban transformation, but rather right. uh, you know trying to preserve. Well, towards rebuild. Uh, uh, that's right. And in my book, towards the end, I, I make some of these comparisons uh, between um, Ottoman rebuilding practices and the recent attempts of Afad, which is the uh, Turkish relief agency under the prime minister's office, uh, to rebuild Van after the series of earthquakes in yeah. 2000 and whatever it was, I forget now, 11, 12. 2011, I think. Yes. Uh, and, and there are quite a few parallels there. It's actually quite an interesting comparison, but I do this only as a, a fun exercise towards the end of the book because hmm. it's not really part of the main research. Sure, yeah. Well, I think I think it's a, a topic that raises uh, a lot of uh, fascinating questions. There's a, there's a lot of angles you can take on natural disasters, looking at how it impacts property relations, looking at, you know, as we talked about, the, the layout of the city. Yes. It change, you know, a moment within which the government can choose to seize new new authorities in a, in a moment of crisis. Uh, you can also take the other, the cultural historian could look at you know, beliefs and uh, reactions, popular perceptions of natural disasters. So really a, a fascinating uh, crucible for different types of historical uh, inquiry that I think needs to be nourished in our field. So I'm glad that you've kind of been one of the first people to put it out there explicitly well, and say you. natural disasters. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the program today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Now, for those who are listening and want to find out more about the topic, we have a bibliography on our website that includes a uh, 
Yaron Ayalon's Natural Disasters in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, that's also a space where you can leave your comments and questions and get in touch with our Facebook community, now over 20,000 people following and commenting uh, on the web. I want to thank you all for listening and invite you to join in next time. Until then, take care. Okay.